market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy. My name is Connor Matchett and I'm the Deputy Political Editor at Scotsman. Apologies are due for our unscheduled break last week, but consider this a return to your regular programming. This week, you will hear from the SNP MSP for East Lothian, Paul McLennan, who sat down with me two weeks ago for a chat. But first, let's head to London, where our Westminster correspondent Alex Brown spoke to Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa. Welcome back to another edition of the Westminster section of the Steamy podcast. I am joined at this time by Anna Sawa, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, last time I saw you, you were being stopped relentlessly for selfies. We are now in Westminster. That was just you. Do you feel like, well, I, I'm such a huge fan. Uh, do you feel like less of a celebrity being You've never forgiven me a for A good dentist teeth. is hard to find. That is, that is very true, but that's not because the dentists aren't good. It's just uh, they're not getting enough support from this one. <laughs> in case there's dentists listening, of course, yeah. I've, got to, I've got to keep the dental fraternity happy. So we're encouraging dentists to go on strike. That's all happening immediately. We are not encouraging that at all. We're encouraging dentists to please make appointments available to your patients and see them uh, speedily uh, so people aren't having to present themselves elsewhere in the National Health Service. Is that on message? It's very, very on message. We'll, we'll check after. Um, so we're here in Westminster. What are you? What are you doing here? You are a long way from home. Are you lost? So a couple of things. Obviously, here talking to good people like yourself uh, and chatting to people about what's happening in Scotland. Uh, I'll be doing some uh, media stuff uh, today as well, uh, and then we've got uh, a reception with uh, CEOs across the UK um, later on this evening talking about how we can have an alternative agenda for growth in this country so we don't have to be stuck in this bind of economic illiteracy and moral bankruptcy we see from the Conservative Party and demonstrate to people that we can do things more fairly and that we don't have to go down this cul-de-sac of tax rises and spending cuts. We can actually advocate something different, which is a strategy for growth in this country that gets us through this cost of living crisis and actually builds prosperity for people in all parts of the United Kingdom and, of course, in Scotland. So we're speaking before the budget. This is being recorded before the... Well, I say a budget. It's a statement without the normal debate being delivered. And from what it seems, it's going to be pretty horrible for lots of people. Do you think that is a choice or is it the only way? So I, I think a couple of things are happening. I think it's important, first of all, to recognise that I think there is an element of the government talking up the extremities of the budget and then trying to paint when they make horrible decisions that, oh, it it could have been a lot worse. The reality is we have a £50 billion black hole because of the actions of the Conservative government, the actions of that mini-budget, and that means that hole is going to be filled by working people across the country, either through tax rises 
orders can be filled by working people across the country, by cuts to public services and another wave of austerity. Just imagine what we could be doing with that money instead if we hadn't had that many budget. We could instead be giving even more support to people in the energy crisis. We could be supporting even more businesses to stop them folding because so much of the inflationary pressures we're, we're meeting today when inflation has gone up again in, in terms of the statistics out today, a lot of that inflation has been driven by the fact there is no cap when it comes to energy prices for businesses. That is putting massive pressure in terms of supply chains, putting massive pressure in terms of individual businesses, and that is driving up inflation elsewhere in the economy as well. There is no serious plan or serious agenda from this government to address that. Instead, the entire focus is trying to clean up the mess they made uh, about six or seven weeks ago, and it's unforgivable, frankly. I mean, you say that, I mean, the the mini-budget cost probably the public £30 billion. Uh, Rishi Sunak refused to apologise, even though Liz Truss did. Do you think that he should apologise? And what does this mean for the Tory credibility? Is it okay because he said, you know, he warned about this in the leadership race? Or is he still still responsible for it and the Conservative Party? Look, I think, first of all, there is no doubt that the decisions made in the mini-budget made things a hell of a lot worse. And it made the conditions even more difficult. But I think it's also important to remember that we hadn't got the same level of recovery in our economy compared to other leading economies in the world coming through the pandemic. That is a failure of a Tory government. Don't forget Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor that was meant to lead us through that recovery. But it also feeds in, I think, to pre-pandemic. This is a government that after 12 years has completely lost its way, it's completely out of touch, it's driven by its own division, by its own ideology, rather than what's right for the country, and there has been no serious plan for growth in this country for now 12 years, and we're all paying the price for that. So Rishi Sunak can try and pretend that this is all just him trying to heal the wounds and the mess made by Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss. He has sat around the cabinet table for years and years helping make these decisions that have caused the economy dear. Of course he should apologise, but in actual fact, sorry's not enough. I'm sick and tired of him thinking, or Conservatives thinking they can just say sorry and we might forget all the disaster they've done. I'm more interested in them actually getting out of the way and letting a competent government be in charge so we can get stability back, we can get leadership back, we can get economic competence back, we can get morality back in our politics. And that's now not on offer from Richie Sunet's Conservatives, that's only on offer by the Labour Party. But do you think the Labour Party are offering enough? It's all well and good to say the mini-budget was disastrous, the Tories are not you know, doing badly. But are Labour offering a vision, do you think, at the moment that goes far enough? Are there well, enough policies to change the country? Well, I've always said it's not enough for us to say that the Tories, and in the case of Scotland, the SNP deserve to lose. We also have to set out why Labour deserves to win. And I think you saw at our conference when we talked about the Great British Energy Company, when we talked about the renewable potential we see in our country. I think you've seen in terms of uh, what uh, people are saying around uh, our strategy around growth, uh, what's being said around how we support people, the most vulnerable people uh, through our social security system, where Rachel Reeves is setting out in terms of a wider strategy for us. I think all of that demonstrates a, a move in the right direction. Of course, is there work to do? Yes, there is. But I don't think it'd be fair to ask Labour to write a budget for 2024, 2025, 2026 in this current climate. Um, we, have, we will have difficult decisions to make, but the frame I would say is we've been making those decisions where we actually have a plan for growth and a strategy for growth, and that's a very different frame from what we have from the Conservatives right now. And finally, the most important question, have you been enjoying Matt Hancock on I'm a Celebrity? 
I don't know if I'm allowed to use the word uh, penis and vagina on your uh, podcast, but uh, given we're talking about the jungle and kangaroo penis and uh, cow's vagina, uh, I, I've got to say I did enjoy watching Matt Hancock having to eat those. The slightly disconcerting thing was he seemed to enjoy it which I think is probably a reflection of his character as well. So the more people get him to do those tasks, uh, the better. The sooner he's voted out from the jungle, the better. But actually, I'm less interested in whether he's voted in or out of the jungle. I want these rotten Tories voted out of government and out of parliament. Uh, that's what will be satisfying me much more. Uh, but should he be in the jungle? No. Does it degrade our politics? Yes. Actually, the people I really feel for are those people in England and Wales who are seeing a covert inquiry and looking at the decisions that were made when he was health secretary um, and the impact that had on their families and the loss of loved ones. And I think for them, there would be a serious emotional toll um, seeing Matt Hancock and an Amber Celebrity making money out of, out of that profile. I, th- I think that's quite sickening and shocking, actually. Very neatly done. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you to Alex and Alice for that. Now let's come back up to Scotland and Edinburgh. I spoke to SNP MSP Paul McLennan a few weeks ago. It is his debut on the Steamy and features an insight into the world of backbench politics. So hello and welcome to the Steamy SNP MSP for East Lothian, Paul McLennan. Welcome, how are you doing? I'm not bad. Uh, first of all, second week back, so yeah, getting back into the rhythm of things. How was recess? It, was, it feels a long one over the summer. It was it was quick, you know, I think it was good to get a wee bit um, rest in the evenings, which sometimes can, you know, you're, you're involved most evenings, you're at meetings most evenings, so worked right through the two weeks, but got a wee break in the evening, so it was good just to, to chill out a little bit about that, but busy, busy recess. Fantastic, and in, this is, I'm right in thinking this is your first term. As an MSP, yeah, first term. You, you involved in councils prior to that, so you're yeah, used to kind of elected office. But what what's the? How have you found it coming, uh, coming in? I was councillor for 15 years in East Lothian. Previously councillor for three years as well. I also worked in the Parliament for Chick Brody for right. about four or five years. So kind of knew the Parliament between 2012 and 2016. Well, yeah, it was sad to see him recently just passed. So yeah, Chick was a character in the, in the Parliament. Let's say, <laughs> uh, and it was sad, you know, to see him to pass away just just recently. But yeah, so. A wee bit of background in the Parliament, background in politics. But really enjoying life in, in the Parliament. That's a, an amazingly quick 18 months mm-hmm. um, that's come up, but absolutely loving it. What are your memories of Chick working for him? He, he, he was such a big, big personality. Yeah, I think the first time I met Chick, well, I knew Kenny Newham was at a, an SNP conference, mm-hmm. and Chick was famous for giving his Elvis impersonations. So I remember Chick giving an Elvis impersonation and we got chatting, and, you know, he'd obviously he was looking for staff at that time and, and, and done that. But yeah, Chick, Chick was... He's really passionate about some issues uh, in terms of that, you know, he, he looked at H- we done stuff around about HGV, uh, mm-hmm. lorry driver shortages, which obviously is still relevant mm-hmm. uh, just now. He was obviously very passionate about his, his home area, you know, we've covered the south of Scotland, but around about here and so on. So he was a passionate man and, and uh, certainly a character within the parliament. Did, did he kind of lead you to go into politics or was that something that you already were? No, I, I think in terms of being a, a councillor, I mean, I was elected back in 2007 and that's when the first STV elections mm-hmm. came out mm-hmm. and it was previously Labour Council. Mm-hmm. So we went and took administration with an, ST, uh, an SNP Lib Dem coalition and I was talking about this yesterday, a colleague remember the first time you we went in to the, to the council. We went into administration, were literally handed a laptop and told, there you go. So that was, that was the induction. Yeah. So it was a, it was a very abrupt uh, introduction to, to politics. But I'd been involved in SNP for 
30 years now, mm-hmm. so and almost passionate about but I had a member of the community council before for 10 years, so always uh, keen to help out in local community and, and involvement in politics was obviously a natural progression for myself. What made you, as a younger man, not to say <laughs> you're approaching the <laughs> yeah I mean probably as a younger I mean I had a family you know young yeah. kids at the time um, you know son and a, and a daughter and I think there was a focus on that and obviously yeah. trying to, to work as hard as I possibly can always had interest in the politics but mm-hmm. until they were a little bit older I think that's kind of what kind of held me back so it's a tough job I think people say in, uh, in this building yeah it is I mean the, the councillor job itself is, is very tough and, and you know as a member of the local government committee we're talking about how we can encourage more people into local uh, local government mm-hmm. and that's a tough enough job but in terms of the, the, uh, the working for them it's, it is a tough job you know and I think that's appreciated right across all the parties mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of do that but everybody's here to try and do their best for their own communities regardless of what uh, party colours they have and sure. you know you recognise that yeah. and in terms of I mean you as you say you've worked in elected councillor for a long time it's one of the big topics at the minute is, isn't it local government funding issues around that how did you see it change in your time as a councillor, you know, through the impact of decisions made here, but also decisions in Hollywood, in Westminster, even around cash and democracy and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm, I've always been passionate about, and at the moment, local government committees looking at yeah, local government going ahead, and we just had a, a paper from Spice talking around about uh, and about nine or ten other countries. What do they do in terms of fundraising for uh, for local authorities? Uh, what powers are there for local authorities? So I think there's. There's a, an agreement across the um, right across the political sphere that we know we need to look at that mm-hmm. in terms of that. And there was a motion just passed at the SNP conference as well, looking at the same type of thing, you know, setting up a working group within the, the, the party to, to look at that. So I think over that period of time, I remember when the concurred it first came in mm-hmm. uh, and was agreed, and obviously before that, there was discussions about ring fencing in the previous Labour administration. Um, the Concordat I think worked very well and I think you know um, it, things have kind of evolved in that obviously we've seen the austerity budget uh, for probably 10 years from mm-hmm. uh, Westminster which ultimately leads through to, to the Scottish Government um, in terms of that so it's, it's a tough time it was a tough time for Scottish Government obviously been a tough time for, for local authorities in terms of that but for me there needs to be more flexibility in terms of uh, local authorities what powers they have I think Scottish Government made the steps, for example, in about the workplace parking levy, mm-hmm. which again is up to local authorities to, to do that in the tran- transient visit levy again, which again gives local authorities the power to do that if they want to do that. I think we should be looking broader than that as well, and I think there's a recognition across the Parliament that we need to do that. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, because if you look at um, how COSLAR operates as well as an organisation, it's often very strongly worded yeah. when talking to the government. I mean, you, you've got that background in the councils. Do you think that there's a, enough pushback from SNP council leaders today to the issues that uh, that Hollywood have to deal with, and maybe you know, is there enough imagination? I think there is pushback, and obviously now we've got an SNP council president, mm. uh, and Shona was on. She spoke to us yesterday at the local government committee. Mm. I think the the motion that was passed the SNP conference, it was talking about additional funding for government, uh, obviously, and talking about additional powers. And so on in terms of that. So I think there there is pushback. I think when it was council leader went along to cause the, the discussion. So there was robust discussions going on at the time, and I think that I think that's healthy. There should be robust discussions between local government and, and national government, as there is between Scottish government and UK government. So this hasn't happened, and I think there is pushback from from that. But I think that's where there's local governance review that's going on just now. So we need to make sure that the UK government, Scottish government, and local authorities work as closely together as well as working with the third sector. Do you think it needs reforming local government in in the way it's funded and you know, council tax has been talked about as a reform for many, many years now. I think now is probably the time, and, and probably more. 
I think a lot of this can be driven by electoral cycles. Mm-hmm. So we're just a year and a half into a Scottish Parliament, we're just six months into uh, to council elections. Now's the time because obviously the closer you get to elections, the more people want to back off from it. So I think it, it needs to look at in terms of what powers the local authorities have, how do they work, for example, with the, the social enterprises, mm-hmm. and what powers uh, in comparison with other countries in, in Europe. So I think that was acknowledged at the SNP conference, it's been acknowledged at the local government. And I think, I think it needs to be almost removed from partisan political debate. I think we all n- know that we need to look at how we uh, make local government work as effectively as possible with Scottish government. Um, local government has said cross-party, uh, local government committee cross-party, and I think there's a recognition to look at that. And I think that, you know, Shona Robertson, the cabinet secretary has, has acknowledged that as well, so I think there'll be discussions that will continue about that. So. Is there too much political game playing, do you think, from the opposition around council funding and issues? I mean, we've, see, we've seen a lot of that this year from you know, the Conservatives and Labour, where often their main point of attack is a lack of money for local government or... You know the classic kind of deals, deal or no deal, no Edmonds. Yeah, yeah. I think that I mean politics is politics. You know, being involved in the council or, or Scottish government in terms of that for a period of time, you're always going to expect a certain element of that. I think a lot of discussions, for example, are in about Scottish government in priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Living forty hours, for example, in, mm-hmm. in terms of that. You know, talking about ring fencing, local government should have more freedom. These are priorities that everybody would would agree with. So I think there is kind of game playing in terms of that and, and, and looking at that. I said I think that's why we need that a healthy debate in terms of non-partisan about what local government looks like and as I said I think that talks about additional powers what's local government there for how does it interact I'd also chair the cross-party group in social enterprises mm-hmm. um, so they're really keen on how they work closer with, um, with local authorities as well so there's that, that whole relationship from UK government to Scottish government to local government down to I think social enterprises in terms of that so that I think that we always need to evolve that I think that's one of the key things. You represent East Lothian yeah. one of my favourite parts of the world I, I live in Edinburgh but go to places like Londonidri yeah. and North Berwick re- regularly what are the challenges for that area um, what makes you so passionate to work on that particular local I think there are two or three I mean I've loved in East Lothian all my life and absolutely love, love the area it's very hard not to love yeah it's incredible you know you've got the, the beaches mm-hmm. um, and then obviously you're up to Lannermuir Hills and, and so on and, and lots of history in between uh, in terms of that so one of the you know, couple of objectives for me one is around about economic development East Lothian has about three quarters of the job density averaged in other parts of, of Scotland so if we go up to the normal, you know, the normal job density average, you're talking about three thousand jobs in East Lothian. So historically, you've seen people come in and work in Edinburgh. Yeah. That work pattern has now changed. More people are working from home. So I set up a business forum. We've had about four or five meetings where we meet uh, with people from the key sectors. So that's tourism, hospitality, food and drink, the renewable sector, uh, also around about how we can work in that. So that brings up issues around about jobs, recruitment, in terms of that, what support is out there, energy costs have obviously come up in terms of that as well. So that's one big issue. A third of East Lothian is, is rural. Mm-hmm. So we have 180 farms in, in East Lothian, so again working with the, the rural sector um, in terms of you know what's happened since Brexit. That's a really important part. But one of the biggest issues, I'm saying issues, one of the biggest opportunities is around about renewables um, in East Lothian. Um, we have many of the um, developers work in East Lothian onshore, offshore, um, solar storage and so on. So we set up a, a, an energy forum where we get um, all the companies coming along, mm-hmm. along with the council, um, schools, skills development agencies and, and so on. So we're looking to develop that. So there's massive opportunities. Supply side groups have been set up, skill side have been set up and we're looking at community benefits 
on the back of that as well. But major opportunities for East Lothian in terms terms of that green, sustainable jobs. It is the future, isn't it, for a lot of Scot- Scottish power, if you like, energy um, industry, given the options. I mean, your, your constituency has nuclear power stations yeah. in it. Um, would you want to see a return to more of those um, to keep jobs there, or do you think that we need to shift in a different direction? I, I, I think it might be a tornest, obviously. It's probably looking to decommission in about four years. Now, they've been involved in discussions. They can monitor energy forum groups, so mm-hmm. how do they transition men from there into jobs, renewable job opportunities? And they've been fantastic as, as part of that mm-hmm. as well. So they, they recognise that EDF themselves are a big player now in renewables. So they work very closely in terms of that. I think another opportunity for East Lone as well is in terms of the decarbonisation of homes. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an estimated cost from Glasgow University saying it would be £33 billion pounds for Scotland. Mm-hmm. If you take East Lothian's share of the population, you talk about six or £700 million. Pounds. Now, we need to do that in the next 10 years, but I'm really keen that we're, we're ahead of the game in East Lothian in terms of looking at as our opportunities for uh, manufacturing businesses in East Lothian, what skills do we require in, in terms of that as well. So again, I think that's a real sector we can try and grow along with the renewable sector. Um, so I think East Lothian is quite unique in terms of what we have in the renewable opportunities um, and really keen to develop that in the next uh, year or two ahead when a lot of these projects that are in planning stage will actually come on stream. It's probably unfair to ask a constituency MP this question, but what's your favourite part of East Lothian? There's, there's lots of parts. I mean, I've been at Stain Dunbar and Belhaven Beach, Belhaven Bay uh-huh. uh, is, is still just absolutely <laughs> incredible. And sometimes the views you get as well, you know, if you're up in the Lammermuirs, mm-hmm. you know, you can see North Berwick Law and the Bass Rock um, and Traplane Law at the same time. So you're, just, you're getting across every single part of these Lammermuirs. Absolutely here. incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's a beautiful constituency, beautiful constituency. But Belhaven Bay, I have to say, I still walk past it and sunsets down there just. Incredible, absolutely incredible. I have to say, I've got a, an irrational dislike for Dunbar Station. I'm sorry to admit, because I once got stuck there on a cross-country train um, going down south and uh, ended up staring. You know, they've got a hedge that spells out Dunbar. Yeah. And I, I stared at that for about two hours. I've been just <laughs> can't get off the train, not moving, I know where I am. <laughs> so now I can't, I can't go through Dunbar without no. remembering the pain no. of those hours. <laughs> but anyway... Take, take us through, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on here in Holyrood over the last couple of weeks. I don't expect you to give as much in the way of, you know, internal detail, but the big story of the last week was the, the gender recognition reform. Yeah. Can you talk us through what the process is for you as a, as a, as a backbench M- MSP about talking through whether or not an issue like this is whipped or if it's a conscious vote and what the kind of internal discussions are around that? I think I think the key things. I mean, obviously, there, there's we have we have we have group meetings and, yeah. and and it's been discussed. There's been other opportunities where it's been discussed. Coming in as a constituency MSP, one of the key things obviously is taking I suppose temperature of the, the constituency in terms of that. So I've tried to be as open as possible. Tried to meet people from you know who share share different views. It's it's been a it's been an area we've had a lot of correspondence mm-hmm. in, in terms of that. So and, and obviously you come in with your you know, your own ideas and what you think in, in terms of that. I, I, and I've said it right along when people were contacting me, I've always been supportive uh, of the, the, the GRA and in and, and terms of where it, where it goes. But you have to listen to other people that, that raise concerns in, in, in that regard. Um, so for me, that, that was trying to take, you know, my, I, I was proud to, to vote for the uh, stage one. Yeah. I know there's issues that were brought up that I think needs to be discussed and will be discussed, obviously, at committee and stage two and, and stage and stage three in terms of that. So I, you know, I was certainly proud in, in, in terms of to do that. But what's it like being contacted by a whip and being told to vote for something you maybe have 
issues on? Is it a difficult conversation to have? No, no, I mean, I, I think people think, you know, you're contacted by whip and, that, and, and that's the case. I think, you know, it, it'll tend to be the other way about. You know, if people have got concerns, they'll raise it with, with, with the whip. Mm-hmm. And, and that's more, you know, certainly since I've been in, in here, you know, that, that's always been, if any concerns, it's an open discussion. Mm-hmm. It's an open uh, door policy, if you like, to come speak to the whip. So it's more, it's more the other way, rather than, you know, the whip's telling you this is the way you've got to vote. I think when people see Parliament think that's how whips work. <laughs> um, it's very much the other way, certainly within our group it's very much the other way. If somebody's got concerns, then they can go approach and, and speak to the whip. It's not the House of Cards approach no. of uh, no. Francis Erkin. No. So, and you know, <laughs> we see the whips walking about the Parliament all the time, so there's lots of opportunities to go to go do that. So, But it's more that way rather than, than another way. About. And do, do, do you think that the approach of the group for that vote in particular was the right one? Because there's a lot of conversation around it that it should have been a conscious vote. Obviously, Ash Reagan is resigned as a minister over that that issue yeah. was that the right approach or do you think that there's a requirement for manifesto commitments to be I, I, I think you know we, we were all elected in the manifesto in 2021 and about the, the GRE mm. yeah, and, and we were asked about that certainly back in some of the hustings in, in 2021 just before that mm-hmm. and, you know, I made my position clear at that time I supported the manifesto obviously we need to see the details of the bill that came forward if there's any issues and in consultation with obviously with constituents, you know, would raise raise these. So certainly, I mean, I, I was a student was elected in twenty twenty one. I think all the SNP MSPs understood that at that particular time. You know, from May twenty twenty one till now, obviously a lot of correspondence from constituents in terms of that. So you know, it made me more aware of some of the issues that were raised, but certainly not in the terms of principle of the bill. And and you know, I, it, still is supportive in, in terms of that. So um, so we all stood on the manifesto pledge and I think that's something that you know we all understood at that, that particular time. Absolutely and did, I mean did, is it I suppose the reason why I'm talking about it at this length is because it, it is the biggest rebellion within the SNP group I think since they've entered you guys entered power in 2007 you know it's the first time a minister has resigned on an issue is there a split or do you think it is just something that will blow over in time, I think there's going to be a robust discussion. I think that you've had that in, in John Mason's speech, for example. And John made his, his, his point clear at that, that particular point. It's certainly not creating any friction within, you know, obviously, Ash it made a decision that, that, she, that she made. In terms of within the group, no, it's not something that I've, I've picked up on. No doubt, you know, there'll be discussions again when it comes to stage two and stage three. But as it is, I think, you know, that you'll, you'll see, you know, Jamie Green, for example, and the Conservatives. I know there are different opinions within the Labour group as well in terms of that. So there will be robust discussions within groups. And in the Parliament floor, I would imagine, when it comes through to stage two and stage three, I would imagine there'll be a lot of amendments come forward at that stage. We heard that Sean Robertson was obviously very much an open door to discuss them with not just SNP colleagues, mm-hmm. but colleagues from the, the Tories, Lib Dems and, and Labour around about, OK, you know, let's try and get legislation through and, and obviously try and bring as many people on board as, as possible. But certainly, certainly not within the group. Let's shift on to the other big story at the minute, which is independence and that kind of ongoing campaign. How important is it that there is a referendum next year, pretty much around this time? The key thing, I think, for me, right, right from the start, is in, in May 2021, mm-hmm. there was a majority of pro-independence MSPs elected, and that has to be democratically respected. That, that's the key thing, I think, for me. So that, that's almost the starting point. You know, people voted for pro-independence. Majority of Parliament, you know, you can hear opposition talk around about now's not the time, and so on. And the SNP want to push for that. This wasn't SNP that delivered the election in result. It was it was electors that delivered that. So we have to respect that first and foremost. I think when we're seeing the situation from even from May last year to this year, um, energy crisis, for example, the Ukraine invasions obviously came along in terms of that cost of living crisis. 
And how do you then tie that back to, to independence? Now, if you're talking about energy, for example, we have no powers over energy strategy. You know, the Scottish Government will be moving forward its, its energy policy review, if you like, in the next few months. But in terms of transmission charging and so on, we don't have the ability to do anything in terms of that. So that's one prime example in, in terms of looking about how we deal with some of the issues that have arisen in, in the UK Parliament over the last number of weeks. Again, no powers to deal with that. So we've seen energy costs go up, we've seen interest rates go up, you know, and longer term interest rates go up in terms of that. And we now have a situation that even before Boris Johnson resigned, we're now hearing there's a massive big black hole deficit in, in the UK. So again, you know, I think we need a fresh, a fresh look about what we're needing to do. You know, if the UK uh, parties want to put their prospectus uh, for remaining in the UK, let them do that. But let us produce what we can do in terms of uh, independence. And offer that future, that different future to people in Scotland. But it's it's a it's a democratic question first and foremost. And I think that's important to remember that every single time. It's a pro-independence majority. We can talk about how we got there as a parliament and how that was, you know, how the vote system was there, but that delivered that pro-independence majority parliament. And I think that should be respected. Do you think your party sounds like a party that is gearing up for what could be the last opportunity, or certainly the last opportunity for a while? to vote on, on the independence issue because I think a lot of commentators and people who watched the SNP conference came away feeling that, you know, members, people like yourself, you know, elected representatives don't really believe the rhetoric that's that's around a, a referendum next year. From, from an SNP point of view, you know, I think the party is geared up. I was at an EGM last night uh, in Musselburgh chairing that meeting and there was a lot of passion talking around about to get there and obviously we wait in the Supreme Court decision. Now, that in itself, you know, we'll wait and see what kind of comes of that, but we shouldn't even have to be that. The UK government should respect our mandate and give us that. So I think in terms of where the party sits, I think there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of passion there ready to, to go. I, th- I think conferences have probably changed over the years in terms of where they are. You have the, the, the you know, obviously the debates, you get a lot of dis- good discussions around about fringe meetings. That's seen as much passion at that conference as it was before. I think probably what's Concerning is do we have a lot of faith in the UK government to deliver that, that, that mandate you know for you know that we, that we want in terms of the independence referendum, and, and you know you look at what's going on in the UK government level over the last you know two or three months it's it's absolutely incredible. No, I, I don't see any drop in passion. I think people are you know as soon as we get that go ahead, people will be um, out knocking doors as they are just now, but it'll be a step up in, in terms of that. And I, I passionately believe in the case we've got now from twenty fourteen to now. It's so much stronger, so much stronger. Presumably you've been, you've been going to SNP conferences for many, quite many well. years. Quite well. <laughs> what, um, what's your best conference tale? Not so much a conference tale. I mean, I, probably the one that came back to talking about when I seen Chick. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd heard about Chick, but seeing Chick up on the stage singing... Uh, what did he say? It was, I'm trying, I think, I think it was uh, Lonely Tonight. <laughs> uh, Lonesome Tonight, sorry, Lonesome Tonight. Uh, yeah, and it just, just that, that never leaves you. You've never been, you've never been attempted to... You know, reprise the role. No, no. I know there was karaoke nights and whatever at conferences, but no, I'll stand and watch, but never get up and, and do that. So I might be doing that at a karaoke night with my team, and there's five or six of us in front of other people. No. Not when there's members of the press potentially no, in the show. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much for no joining problem. us. Thank you. Cheers. Appreciate it. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you to Paul for speaking to me, and thank you for listening at home. We'll be back next week. Speak to you then. Bye-bye.